This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study in the Word this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask his direction and guidance upon our study. Father, we're thankful that we have your Word to inform us that the universe is not all that appears to us through our experience or our eyes or our taste or our touch, but that there is a dimension that is invisible to us. There is a war that goes on around us, an invisible war, a spiritual war, the Bible tells us, and that the very creation of the human race is a vital part of that that conflict, that angelic conflict, that spiritual rebellion. Father, there is much that we do not know about what goes on in the heavenlies because that is beyond our senses and beyond uh, what we experience or what we can reason to. And you have only revealed to us a small percentage of what is knowable about the angels and the demons. But you have revealed to us that you are in control and that therefore we do not need to be fearful, be anxious, or in any way be concerned about our position as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ in relation to this angelic conflict. What we are to focus on is our pursuit of spiritual maturity. We're to focus on our understanding of your word, and we're to focus on our walk by means of the spirit and trust in you for victory in the angelic conflict. Now, Father, as we study this uh, remarkable example of Jesus casting demons out of these two uh, demon-possessed individuals in the Gospel of Matthew. We pray that you would help us to understand uh, the dynamics of this situation as well as its implications for our own spiritual life. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I think ever since the early 70s when The Exorcist came out, that there has been this sort of infatuation as well as a concern among many Americans and others in the world with the demonic and demon possession. If you've watched any television lately, you'll see notice that um, Hollywood is really promoting uh, a new movie coming out called Annabelle. And apparently from what I've discerned from just watching the, the trailers that they're showing on television, is this has to do with one of those really evil, wicked-looking dolls that somehow has a demon attached to it. And the uh, parents of this infant have uh, purchased this doll and it's brought it into their home. And as a result, inadvertently, they have brought a demon into the house. And that forms the basic basis for the whole plot. It's really interesting when... You see these kinds of movies come out since the, since the exorcist because so many people, Christian and non-Christian, just have a lot of confusion about the role of the demons and who they are and what they can and cannot do. In fact, this very idea that somehow demons attach themselves to certain objects. And if you travel in the Far East and you pick up a Buddha or you pick up another object that has some religious connotation and you bring it home, then you too can unwittingly bring a demon into your house. First time I ran across that idea was a number of years ago when Hal Lindsey first uh, published a book. It was his second book 
bestseller called Satan is Alive and Well on Planet Earth. The first book, as many of you know, was Late Great Planet Earth, which dealt with prophecy. And in his second book, the focus was on the occult, on Satanology, demonology, warning people. Uh, He did a good job of explaining the angelic conflict, but one of the areas in which he slipped tremendously was in the area of the demonic and its relationship to believers. He was fine on demon influence, but he had picked up too many ideas from interacting with people who had had experience with the occult or experience with demons. This is one of the major problems in this area is that you have a number of people who have come out of various backgrounds where they have been involved in the occult and they have had various experiences with that which they believe is demonic. Now, I say that way because it may or may not have something to do with the the demonic because we need to raise the question, how do we really know if someone is demon-possessed? I would imagine that if I took a poll and asked people if they think that uh, Stalin was demon-possessed or Hitler was demon-possessed or the Ayatollah Khomeini or Khomeini uh, were demon-possessed, that you'd get a lot of people who would say, well, yes, of course. Uh, and that's because we think man is a lot better than he really is. And so whenever anybody crosses a certain line and commits certain kinds of sins, genocide or uh, you know mass murder or uh, certain sexual sins, that that they could only actually do that if there were demons involved. In fact, there was a professor at Dallas Seminary, uh, one of three who were released from their contract back in the mid-'80s because of their involvement in what has come to be known as the Vineyard Movement or the Signs and Wonders Movement. And he taught people that if there's sexual abuse... In your background, there's sexual abuse is always involved with the demonic. Now, where in the world did he get that? See, these ideas come along that, that are attached to what I would call sort of this myth related to demonism. These, these ideas, they sound good. There are people who've had these experiences, but how do we evaluate them? The only way we can evaluate them is from the Word of God. And there are a lot of really odd ideas about demons and demon possession that are sort of part of uh, of cultural baggage that that we have. Even if you're an atheist, a rationalist, an empiricist, and you're not religious at all, it's still part of cultural baggage because of the way it's been introduced into our culture via a lot of Hollywood films and television shows and, and, and popular literature. Let's not forget Shirley MacLaine, who was out on a broken limb and said many things that became mainstream. I mean, the whole New Age movement that she was sort of the the spokesperson for back in the 80s, you never hear anybody talk about it anymore. Why? Because it's been mainstreamed. And there's many people who who believe in a lot of those ideas, and it's no longer culturally uh, odd. It's just sort of been expected. So when we get into the Gospels, we see a number of stories. I think there are eight specific instances where Jesus casts demons out of out of people who are demon-possessed. There are a number of other general statements, as we saw earlier in Matthew chapter 8, verse 16, where we read a summary statement that, Uh, When evening had come, when Jesus was in Capernaum, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed, and he cast out the spirits with a, a word and healed all who were sick. And there's a certain connection we'll see between healing the sick and casting out demons. I'm not saying that that they had a view that illness was the result of demon possession, although uh, biblically it appears that that could be one consequence. But we also have to be very careful how we look at these examples. I have read pretty solid individuals who have written books on demonism and and Satanism, and they have looked at these examples in Scripture and, and looked at the characteristics 
that you see among the the demon-possessed and have made the mistake of thinking that gives us a list of symptoms of demon possession. And all it does is tell us what happened in those specific instances. We have to be very careful not to extrapolate from a, a n- description or a narrative of what happened to, a, to doctrinal absolutes. All we can say is that, yes, demons can produce certain kinds of, uh, of manifestations, but that's, the Scripture isn't saying that that's what demonism consists of. Just because somebody manifests some of these characteristics doesn't necessarily mean that they are demon-possessed. There are a lot of other causes uh, that could be the, the, the reason for their behavior. They could be psychotic. They could, be, uh, they could have some sort of physical problem in their brain, a brain tumor, different things of that nature that are physically physical causes of that kind of aberrant behavior. Uh, there was a story I read in the uh, paper this last week of a woman who had a, had a stroke, and afterward she just spoke in profanities. So some people would say, well, if all you can do is speak in profanities, it must be demon possession. Well, there's also ways in which we can have physiological brain damage, and it can manifest in a variety of different different ways. So we ought to raise the question, how do we know if a person is demon-possessed? And when we look at the Scripture, it, it gives us a little guidance, but not as much as some people uh, wish it had. So we're going to continue in our study today. Uh, last time we looked at this first instance of Jesus' power, these three miracles of power where he stilled the storm. And this morning we're going to look at the second example of Jesus' power when he makes deviled ham. All right, now, there we go. The miracles of power, just setting up the context, Three miracles are emphasized here. Jesus stills the storm on the Sea of Galilee. And the second one is the one we're focusing on this morning. He cast out demons from the two demon-possessed men. And third, next time we'll look at his healing uh, the uh, paralyzed man to demonstrate that he can forgive sins. In each one of this, these Miracles of power, Jesus is demonstrating something about his claim to be the Messiah. That's why Matthew is picking on these. They're dramatic, they're extraordinary, but he's cherry-picking his evidence uh, to show that Jesus is who he claims to be. So he's not writing these in chronological order. He's arranging them topically or thematically in order to make his point. So as I pointed out last time, In the first instance, Jesus demonstrates his power and authority over the forces of creation to show that he is the creator God who sustains and controls creation and who as Messiah can reverse the damage of sin on creation. He's the ultimate solution to the environmental problem because the ultimate cause of the environmental problem was Adam's sin. And only the second Adam can resolve that problem, and that will begin at the cross. In this second episode, Jesus is demonstrating his authority and power over Satan and the fallen angels, also known as the demons, and that he has the power to deliver the creation from the control of Satan. Satan currently is in control. He usurped that power from Adam by virtue of Adam's Sin. When Adam sinned, he abdicated his position, as it were, as the king of creation. And so Satan then becomes the king of creation. He's called the prince in the power of the air in Ephesians 2.2, the god of this age in 2 Corinthians 4.4, and he's called the ruler of this world by Jesus in John 12.31. And then next time... We'll see in the third example that Jesus shows that he has the divine prerogative to forgive sins, which will be a hallmark of his messianic reign. So just to summarize this, restate what I said a minute ago in this second instance, Jesus is demonstrating his authority and power over the demons. Now, why does he do this? 
He does this because this fits within the scriptural flow of what happened back in Genesis 1 through 3 and what will culminate in Revelation chapter 20. And we call this doctrine the angelic conflict. Now, I would take the time, perhaps at this moment, first time we've really hit this in Matthew, to go through a doctrine of the angelic conflict, but I'm going to reserve that until we get to Matthew chapter 12, when Jesus is accused of casting out demons by the power of Beelzebul, another title for Satan. We're just going to hit some of the issues related to it uh, this morning. What happens in this angelic conflict? Satan rebelled against God in his original, uh, as, in his original position as Lucifer. Uh, we call him Lucifer. Halel ben Shahar is the Hebrew. He's the morning sun, uh, the morning light. Uh, he is the highest of all the angels. He is called in Ezekiel 28 the anointed cherub who covers the throne. So he's very close to God. And in Isaiah chapter 14, verses 12 through 14, he makes five statements about his arrogant ambitions, uh, five I wills, if you read the text, I will be like God is his final goal. He, has, he desires to be like God. When God created Adam and Eve and placed them in the garden, it is Satan who takes on the guise of a creature, a serpent, and tempts Eve so that man's fall is directly related to Satan's fall and this angelic rebellion uh, against God. As they have, as they sin, the result is that it plunges the, the universe, all of God's creation, into the corruption of sin. And so now we all live in a fallen world. From the moment that, that Eve and Adam listened to Satan, the world system, the cosmic system, comes under satanic influence. So when Eve is tempted to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that was not a sin. It's not a sin. The only sin, as God defines it in Genesis 2, is to eat the thought about it. He didn't say, don't think about eating it. Don't think about what's going to happen we would classify those as mental attitude sins, but at that point, the only thing that's identified as a sin is eating the fruit. God said, don't eat of the fruit, for in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. It wasn't the anything else that was defined as a possible sin, only the eating of the fruit. The instant they did uh, that she yields to that temptation... What's been going on here? This is something called demon influence or Satan influence. She's influenced to rebel against God. So we'll use this term satanic or demonic influence, and basically it means any act whereby we are influenced to disobey God. That is in one way or another demon influence. That means all human viewpoint thinking is really demon influence. Anything that is built upon Satan's thought system, which is grounded in arrogance, anything built upon that is, is demon influence. So when you watch wonderful movies that seem very nice and have great moral themes, but they're not built upon the Word of God, in fact, they're, they, they're, they're heavily influenced by Protestant liberal theology like the Disney film Pollyanna. You're talking about a film that is promoting re religious morality, which is demon influence. And the reason I point that out is because a few years ago I was teaching on this topic at, a, at the Conservative Theological Society meeting in Fort Worth, and I, afterwards I was asked the question about whether or not children should read Harry Potter. And I said, well, the only reason you don't like Harry Potter is he's made overt what is really subvert or covert in many films. Any film, any work of literature, any novel that is expressing morality apart from God is producing demon, it's produced from demon influence. We just never think of it that way. We think of it as somehow this is good because it's morally good, but in another sense, it is a, it's a moral good that is wrapped up in the context 
of a rationale of independence from God, that somehow we can do good, absolute good, that is pleasing to God without going to the cross or walking by the Spirit. That's just a lie from the pit of hell. So I'm, I'm challenging us to think more correctly about how we look at some of these different things. So if you're upset about reading Harry Potter, then don't read any literature. Don't go to any movies whatsoever because the issue isn't that it talks about witches or magic or any of those things, but the issue is any literature, anything that promotes morality, goodness, utopian thoughts, anything apart from absolute 100% dependence upon God. Unless it's promoting 100% absolute dependence upon, upon God, it's just the lie of the devil. And therefore, that is, uh, by nature, demon influence or satanic influence. Now, this dominates the cosmic system, the world system, until, until Jesus comes back. The, the first advent... He offered the kingdom. In the kingdom, there would be this, this overturning of Satan's power. And when we go to Revelation 20, verses 1 through 3, we discover that when Jesus does establish his kingdom, what happens to Satan and the demons? Now, the demons are mentioned in Revelation 20. What happens to them? They are confined to the abyss for a thousand years. Now, that's important to understand that because that's what happens in this in this episode. Remember how many times I keep hitting the point that the whole, you've got to understand the message of Matthew to understand Matthew. The message of Matthew is repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The whole issue is will they accept the kingdom? Well, when we get into this episode with these, these uh, demons, their question of Jesus doesn't come out in Matthew, but it certainly comes out in the parallel there in, in, in Mark and in, and especially in the Luke, Luke parallel in Luke chapter eight. The, the demons say, are you going to torment us before the time? Are you going to send us to the abyss? That's the key, key word here. They're saying, are you going to send us to the abyss? When does that occur? That occurs when Jesus establishes his kingdom. So here's Jesus showing up on the earth at the first advent, offering the kingdom, and they're saying, are you here already? Is our time up? Are you going to send us now to the abyss? They understand the whole premillennial kingdom message of, of Jesus' first advent. They, they understand that. The Jews rejected that, but they understand it. That's what they're afraid of. They're afraid that the time's up and they're going to get sent to the abyss. They're not because the kingdom's going to be rejected and therefore postponed. So all of that gives us just an understanding and orientation to this episode as to why it's included in the Gospels and why it's important. Demonstrates that Jesus has authority and power over Satan and the fallen angels, the demons. He is their creator. Second, it shows that he's the creator God who sustains and controls creation even in the midst of satanic infiltration and control. And third, it shows that as Messiah, he has the power to deliver the creation eventually from the control of Satan, who's called the prince of the power of the air, the god of this age, and the ruler of this, of this world. So as I said earlier, I define demon influence for us. The demon influence is any thought, any framework of thinking, that is built upon a foundation that we can find life apart from 100% dependence upon God. Now, a lot of things are produced as demon influence. Most all, all of the philosophies of man, all of the religions of man are the result of demon influence. So they can take many different forms, even opposing forms, but they all fit under the umbrella of demon influence, human viewpoint thinking, worldly thinking, cosmic thinking, all of these uh, describe the same kind of thing. So whether you're talking about Buddhism or Mormonism, whether you're talking about Islam or Hinduism, are they're they're all part of the devil's world, and they're all part and the result of demon influence. Now, demon possession is something that is different. I'll look at that in a little more detail later on. But demon possession takes place when a an individual an unbeliever always, never a believer. When an unbeliever 
body is invaded by a one or more demons, and they are able to take control of his bodily functions to an extraordinary degree. They override the personality and the volition of the individuals, but not absolutely, because that personality and that individual and his volition are still inside that person, and they can still respond to the gospel, which is the only solution. So demon possession, only believers. Demon possession is when a de- one or more demons takes up internal residence inside the body and takes over the control of the body of an individual, and then demon influence is just thought influence. So as we look at our passage, let's just uh, work through it a little bit and understand what goes on. In verse 23, or excuse me, verse 28, Matthew says, when he had come to the other side. Now, it appears as you're reading through your English text that this comes immediately after the the storm. That's not necessary. There's a break in the action. Remember, Matthew's just taking different episodes. We see a chronology, uh, chronological development better in the Gospel of Luke. But here, Matthew's just moving to the next example of Jesus' uh, power as a Messiah. He says, when he had come to the other side, to the country of the Gergesenes, if you're using a New King James Bible, it reads Gergesenes. That's in the New King James, the King James Version, and that's the reading in the majority text. The majority of documents have Gergesenes. There is a textual variant here that shows up in a couple of the more ancient documents, and that is the basis for uh, the Nestle Alon text or the what's called the critical text, which is the basis for a lot of modern translations such as the NASB, NIV, ESV, RSV. And so your Bible, this is a notoriously difficult problem. I think it's really rather, the solution is really rather simple, and that's to go with the majority text view. And we'll see the solution to this uh, coming up here. So they come to the... Uh, uh, region of the Gergesenes, or the area of the Gergesenes. Now, here's our map of the area around the Sea of Galilee. Now, the area to the west of the Sea of Galilee, this little blue line you see coming down from the north and, and emptying into the Sea of Galilee is the River Jordan from its uh, headwaters up near, uh, up near Dan in the north. And then it's going to flow out of the Sea of Galilee uh, down to the south going this way. Now, this is the border of modern Israel. And the area to the west is a part of modern Israel. It is the historic area of Galilee. The area to the east is the uh, modern uh, kingdom, Hashemite kingdom of Jordan. And this was uh, also... A t- territory known as the Decapolis, or the Ten Cities. Only one of those ten Greek cities was located to the uh, west of the Jordan River, and that was a city that was known as Scythopolis. This is an interesting historical note. The Scythians came from up north with the Russians, and at some point they had served in probably the Greek army as mercenaries, and then they settled at Scythopolis. Scythopolis was a a Greek city. It's a fabulous ruin. Those of you who have been to Israel with me have been there. It is known, it was on the site of the ancient uh, biblical site, Beit Shan. Beit Shan was the, uh, there's a large tell that rises above uh, above the ruins of Scythopolis, which is where the Hebrew city, I mean the ancient Hebrew city was, and that's where they hung the heads of Saul after he and the head of Saul and Jonathan after they were killed at Mount, Mount Gilboa. Uh, the Philistines decapitated them and then hung their their heads on the walls of Beit Shan. So that later became known as Scythopolis, and this area over here. Uh, Gadara is located here. Actually, this region, according to Josephus, it's this whole region going all the way down to the Sea of Galilee was known as the region of Gadara. And then you had another city, not Gergesa, which is here, but Jerash, 
which is located right around the O in Decapolis. It's also a fabulous, uh, fabulous uh, archaeological site. It's huge, second only to Ephesus, and uh, we've been there a couple of times in the past. But Gergesa was a small village located right on the Sea of Galilee. Nearby there are cliffs. It's the only place uh, in that area where there are cliffs that overlook the, the water that could explain the what uh, takes place with the pigs. And what Matthew is describing is the region of the Gadarenes, but it's actually taking, or what the other Gospels, Mark and Luke, are describing is the region of the Gadarenes, but here it's this area of Gergesi, which is modern Kersey, so that's located in this particular area. So that resolves the uh, problem, because some of you will read in different versions, and you get in, see different names, and you scratch your head a little bit what's going on here. So Jesus comes to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, and it's uh, and he comes to this area, and when he arrives, according to uh, the gospel accounts, he is met by these two men who were demon-possessed. Now, in Matthew, it says there are two men. In Mark and Luke, they only focus on one man. Now, both men came, but apparently one man was sort of the passive partner in, in, in there, and he didn't say much. It was just the one guy who was the most fearsome and was the most powerful and the most vocal and carried out most of the conversation. So Mark and Luke just focus on the one man, whereas Matthew tells us that, in fact, there were actually uh, two men present. Matthew says that as Jesus uh, arrived and as he got off the boat, he is met by this these two wild men. They are naked. They are covered in uh, crusty, dried blood. They have been uh, living among the tombs. And remember, according to the Mosaic Law, the, the tombs, are, this is a place of the dead. They're, they're unclean. It signifies their identification with, with Satan and that which is unclean. And they are just, they're, they're filthy. You could, if you were downwind, you could smell them 20 feet away. Their hair's uncut. Matted, they would, they, they've been tried, to, uh, people have tried to chain them, so there may have been some remnant of those chains on one of them, and they're, they've been gashing and slashing themselves with rocks, so they are uh, covered with blood. They are a terrifying uh, sight, and anyone who saw them approach would just naturally want to flee and, and run away from them. And they come running up to Jesus. As soon as he gets off the boat, they just run up to him. And we're told that uh, as they do this, uh, they, uh, Matthew also says they're exceedingly fierce, which means they're, they're scary as anything. And no one could pass that way. They frightened off all the travelers. And they cry out to Jesus, what have, you, what have we to do with you, Jesus, you son of God? Now, what's interesting in the... Uh, Mark account, and that's why I said they're, they're not worshiping. It's the same word, the root word that we translate uh, worship, proskuneo, is a word that literally means to just bow down. So as demons, they are under the authority of God, and so they are bowing down to uh, Jesus, the son, eternal Son of God. They recognize who he is, and so they have to bow down to him, but they're not worshiping him. This isn't a positive thing. And it's not that, well, the, the man is bowing down. There's, this man's personality is totally out, totally in the background, and it's the demons who are crying out uh, with, in the, with using the man's voice. And in Mark uh, eight, uh, Mark 5, 7, he says, What have I to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? Uh, Matthew just trims it down to Son of God, but the full statement is Jesus, Son of the Most High God. So they recognize who Jesus is. But recognizing who Jesus is as the eternal second person of the Trinity doesn't mean they're saved. It just means they, they recognize, they know who God is. Demons and Satan know who God is. That doesn't mean that they're, they're saved. And they ask the question, have you come to torment us before the time? Now, as I pointed out earlier, that time is related to the establishment of the kingdom, that when the kingdom is established, then Jesus will send, Revelation 20 
verses 1 through 3, or 2 through 3, just tells us that Satan will be confined for a thousand years. This passage, as indicated in Luke, suggests that not only will Satan be cast into the abyss for a thousand years, but all of the demons are cast into that abyss for a thousand years to be released at the end of the uh, millennial kingdom. And so in Matthew 8.28, we read that they, they immediately come to Jesus, they identify him for who he is, and they question him as to what he's doing there and why he is doing there and what they are going to, uh, what, what he's going to do. And they ask basically three things of him in this, in this section. First of all, what have we to do with you, Jesus, Son of God? So they recognize his authority and that no matter what they want to do, they must submit his authority. Now, the principle there is that, that no matter what happens in this life, when there is demonic involvement, demons can only do what God allows them to do. Demons do, and Satan do not operate free as a free-for-all, free from God's authority. In the book of Job, which gives us an understanding of how the angelic conflict is related to human suffering, Satan can't do anything to Job unless first he gets God's permission. So God is in control, and here we see the same thing, Jesus is in control. Second thing they ask is, have you come to torment us before the time? And I've already discussed that. And then third, they say, well, if you cast us out, then permit us to go away into the herd of swine. Now, I want to point out this word, cast us out. The word in the Greek is ekbalo. And it's important to understand these terms as we see them in, in Greek related to demon possession because it helps us to understand and define demon possession. There's a big battle over this out among evangelicals. And in reading recent commentaries, they've also come to this, this fraudulent view of the language, in my opinion, and they say that, well, diamondizomai really doesn't mean demon-possessed. And, and what they do is they look at the dictionary for the word possessed, and the first meaning means ownership. And they say, well, they aren't owned by Satan, so there's no such thing as demon possession. Well, if you just look at the second meaning for the word, it means to dwell somewhere, to take up your habitation somewhere. If you're living somewhere, then you are in possession of that domicile. You're in possession of that home. So they, they pick the wrong meaning for possess, and then they say, well, that wouldn't happen uh, in, in, in the New Testament. The word diamondizomai is a, simply a passive participle that indicates that you're acted upon by a demon. So what they say is, see, this word just means to be acted upon by a demon. It doesn't talk about just being indwelt by a demon. Well, it's a general word. But in all of these contexts, there are specific words that help us understand the specific meaning of diamondizomai. Diamondizomai never shows up in any passage related to demon influence. It only shows up in passages where you have these other three words present. The word on the left is ace erkomai. Erkomai is the root verb, means to come or to go somewhere. That prefix ace means to go into something. When Jesus cast out a demon, the word for casting or throwing is balo, where we get our word ball, to ek is the prefix that means out of. So to cast a demon out of implies that the demon previously had to be inside. And this is the word that's described uh, actually, ex erkomai that's just above it, to come or go out of something. And we see this uh, specifically stated in the language of, of the Mark passage in Mark chapter 5, where the demon says, if you're going to cast us out, ek balo, then cast us, send us into the pigs. That would be ace erkomai, they're going into the pigs. And so then it says that Jesus Jesus commanded them to come out of the, the, the man, which is the word ex erkomai, and to go into eth erkomai, the pigs. So those terms are very precise. And those terms show up in all of these examples where there's more than just a summary statement. 
all of these examples of demon possession, that therefore diamondizomai clearly means by usage that a demon has gone into somebody, and the solution is that that demon needs to come out of somebody. Now, how do you know if a person's demon-possessed? Well, there are a lot of suggestions over the years as to how you describe or how you identify demon possession. I challenge anybody to find a passage in Scripture that gives us that information. The reason we know these people in the Gospels were demon-possessed and not crazy or not on drugs or not uh, not having uh, too many uh, hallucinogenic mushrooms to eat or whatever it might be, the reason we know they're demon-possessed is because the Bible tells us they were demon-possessed. Otherwise, how would we know? And there have been people down through the generations who have given us lists so that you can know and you can tell how a person or if a person is demon-possessed. Now, I want you to pay attention to this because what I'm saying is that, that this is all guesswork. It has no foundation in Scripture. It's based on people's experiences or their imagination or the way they think it ought to be. But remember, uh, First Corinthians, Second uh, Corinthians, chapter fourteen tells us that, that uh, or, yes, uh, chapter twelve rather, Second Corinthians chapter twelve tells us that Satan and his demons appear, his ministers appear as angels of light. So they're engaged in, in a lot of counterfeit operations. And they appear to be good when, in fact, they're evil. Now, here's one example of a rabbi in the uh, 3rd century uh, A.D., Rabbi Huna, who said that there were four characteristics that would describe someone who was demon-possessed, walking about at night. So I'm not going to ask for a show of hands about who has insomnia and kind of wanders around the house at night, but... He thought that was a sign of, in, of a demon possession or spending the night on a grave. Now, there's probably no one here who's done that. Or tearing one's clothes or destroying what you've been given. Those were the, If you did those, one of those four things, you were possibly demon possessed. Here's another list that was given in Puritan literature in the 1600s. Uh, one of these would indicate that you were demon-possessed, perhaps, that you thought you were possessed. If you led a wicked life, if you were uh, persistently ill or you fell into a heavy sleep, if you have narcolepsy or you just have sleep apnea, and one of the questions they ask you in a sleep study is, do you, have you ever fallen asleep at a traffic light or at a stop sign? then that's an indication you're really not getting much sleep at night. I have a friend who's fallen asleep several times in an airport waiting room and missed his flight. So these are signs of someone who's not getting enough sleep at night, so so they have sleep apnea. So in according to the Puritans, maybe you were demon-possessed because you fall into a heavy sleep too quickly. Vomiting unusual objects, toads, serpents, Worm, iron, now I, I, that's, that's an unusual one. Stones, artificial objects such as nails, pins, etc. If you blaspheme, if you make a pact with the devil or you're troubled with spirits, if you show a frightening and horrible countenance, if you're tired of living, if you're uncontrolled and violent, if you make sounds and movements like an animal. So that was what they thought of in the 1600s as examples, quite a bit different from what Rabbi Huna said. But then we fast forward up to the 20th century, and there have been several people who've made different lists. There was one uh, Christian German evangelical by the name of Kurt Koch who wrote several books on this topic, and he said that evidence of, of demon possession was cursing, grinding teeth, suicide, or falling into a trance. He said that possessing demons emit a scornful laugh if he hears someone talking about the cross of Christ or the blood of Jesus, and that the person possessed will display evil and hateful expressions, especially of spiritual, if spiritual things are talked about. Now, all these things are just guesses, because the Scripture doesn't tell us. They are, they are what people have deduced from their experience, but that doesn't mean that it has any basis. In fact, it's the same thing. Another one of these examples is this idea that a demon can attach itself to an object. Now, I'm not saying that's yes or no, 
but this has entered into sort of modern demonology that you can buy an object that's been used in some other religious worship somewhere, and if you do that and you bring it into your house, then you run the risk of having a demon in your house. And Hal Lindsey has several anecdotes about that in his book. And my question is, I know people who've had the same kind of things in their house and nothing like that's ever happened. It's just an experience-based supposition. It's not an absolute. It's, it's not in any way, uh, shape, or form something that is actually real. So as we continue with, with Matthew's story, in verse 30, uh, we're told that a good way off there was a herd of many swine. Mark tells us that there were about 2,000 swine. Also tells us in the parallel passages that Jesus inquired of the, uh, of the demon what his name was. He said his name was Legion. Now, Legion was also about 2,000 in the, in the Roman army. So there's a connection there, 2,000 pigs, 2,000 demons. Each one can have his own little piggy home. So they beg him then, if you cast us out, Egbalo, permit us to go away into the herd of swine. It seems to indicate that demons like to have something to possess. They want to be involved and have a material connection to the material world. And so they want to go into the demons. Well, Jesus then gives them permission, he says, to, to go into, uh, into these demons. Let me see here. I have a... Uh, well, I don't. Maybe it's back here. Uh, here we go. Jesus says to go, hupago, which is simply to a command to go or to enter. It's expanded a little more in the Matthew passage as Jesus, I mean, as in the Mark passage, as Jesus cast them out, he says to them, uh, he gave them permission and immediately they went out. In the Luke passage, uh, or Jesus said to them in verse 8, come out of the man unclean spirit. And that word come out is ex erkami, indicating they're inside and they need to come out. And so at this point they come out, they enter the swine, and the whole herd runs off violently down the cliff into the sea, and they all die in the water. They're all drowned. Now, some people have made the suggestion that, well, there really shouldn't have been any pigs there because this is Jewish. Well, that side of the Jordan, that side of the, the, of, of the uh, Sea of Galilee was a Gentile area. There were a number of Jews that lived there, but it was predominantly a Gentile area, so the Gentiles were perfectly fine raising, raising pigs, and they probably had a black market for pork over on the uh, east side of the Jordan. Uh, and, and but they've lost their livelihood. And this is the response, the negative response. Now, M- Matthew introduces this hostile response here. It's the first time we see a negative response to Jesus. And what Matthew's doing as he writes this story, uh, writes about Jesus, is he introduces us now to the, for the first time to opposition to Jesus. And it comes from probably these Gentiles on the uh, east side of, of the Jordan River. And so he, uh, they come out and they've lost their livelihood. Uh, they find out that the, the pigs have gone out and the whole city came out to Jesus in verse 34. And when they saw him, they begged him to depart from their region and to go back to the other side because he doesn't want them interrupting their lifestyle. He has, he is, has now, the, the eternal son of God has invaded into into the world, and they're rejecting him. So this is the first sign of coming rejection. So what we see and what we learn from this episode is that Jesus is in complete authority and control of Satan and the demons. This will not come to its full uh, full evidence until the millennial kingdom when Jesus casts the demons and Satan into the abyss. But it shows us that he has control. See, Christians need not fear or worry about the demonic. As First John says, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Greater is the Holy Spirit than the, than the Satan or the demons that are in the world. And so we can have complete confidence in that. We can be confident that Christians can't be demon-possessed very simply because we are a temple of the Holy Spirit. Now, in the past, people have simplified that argument in a wrong way and said, 
well, God can't reside where a demon resides, or a demon can't be in the same place as God. But in passages of Scripture, Satan enters into the throne room of God. The real issue there was missed. It's an exegetical issue. The word for temple that is used there in 1 Corinthians 3.16 is naos. There are two words for temple, heros, which involves the whole temple precinct, and naos, which is the holy of holies. This is the inner sanctum, the holiest of holy places. And so as we are made a naos of God, not a heros, and so as a naos of God, nothing evil can enter in. In the Old Testament, if anything entered into the holy of holies, they immediately died. So that area is the most sanctified place, and that's how our bodies are described. And so on that basis, we don't have to be concerned about demon possession. However, when we're in carnality and when we're not studying the word, we must be concerned and worried about demon influence because that is what our sin nature feeds on to develop its rationales of disobedience to God. And that is what we must focus on. The only way to have victory over demon influence is, as Paul puts it in Romans 12, 2, we are not to be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of our thinking. And that only comes by constant study of the word, reading the word, and letting our thinking be completely overhauled by the doctrines that are in Scripture, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things and reflect upon your word, to be reminded that you are in control of all things, and ultimately even Satan and the demons must submit to your authority and to the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're reminded that we do not have to succumb to fear or worry and anxiety when it comes to the demonic. Neither must we just blame the demons for whatever uh, problems or sins that we have in life. But we have to come to understand that all problems ultimately relate uh, to human sin, though they have a role within within the angelic conflict. But the solution is always confession, recovery, focus on your word. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here Uh, this morning that is unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that the only solution is faith in Christ. Jesus died on the cross for everyone's sins, yours included. He paid the penalty for every single sin, and the only solution is to trust in him, to accept him as your Savior, as the one who died for you. Now, Father, we pray that you would challenge us with what we studied this morning, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.